What's up, Crypt Nation? This is Pizza Mind here with Bryce Paul. And today, our very special guest is Alex Gladstein, the Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation. This is not your typical crypto broadcast where we bring in a founder or a CEO to talk about, you know, what kind of emerging tech they're building. Rather, this is someone who's actually using the tech and applying it to make the world a better place. We ran into him at the Bitcoin Is uh, meetup in Los Angeles, and uh, his speech was really, really moving. So I had to have him on the show. Alex, thank you so much for taking your time, and welcome to Crypto 101. Thanks so much for having me on. Excited to be here, guys. Awesome. Tell us a little bit, what is the Human Rights Foundation, and what is your role there? Sure. Well, the Human Rights Foundation is a nonprofit charity organization based in New York with a mission of helping promote civil liberties and personal freedoms for people who live under dictatorships and authoritarian regimes around the world. So basically an organization committed to promoting freedom and liberty and justice uh, under very repressive governments. And that's actually quite a large mission, unfortunately, because today about 4 billion people, billion with a B, live under uh, some sort of authoritarian regime. And we can make jokes about um, how repressive uh, you know, the United States and Europe is, are. Um, and in, in, when we study Bitcoin, we learn more about financial privacy and there's a lot of things that scare us there. But we're, we're actually talking about actual dictatorships here. So like China, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Cuba, Zimbabwe, Eritrea, Iran, Russia, etc. Places where there's no free speech, there's no freedom of assembly, and there's no mechanism for people to hold their government accountable at all. So even when you're just talking about like sort of strict authoritarian regimes, one party states are places where like there's obviously like one dictator, one small group, one oligarchy in charge. That's four billion people. So you know, our mission is to connect with change makers in these societies, uh, give them tools they need, give them a voice, help them tell their story, um, fund work and research to understand uh, how democracy develops. Uh, how individual freedoms and human rights grow. Um, and we, we have a lot of uh, perspectives when it comes to looking at technology as well. Uh, technology is a driver for change. Generally speaking, you've got two different kinds of technology that we've observed. One is like more pro-individual, we'll say technology, uh, things like uh, the open internet, encryption, uh, encrypted messages, Bitcoin. Uh, then there's also technology, which is more pro-authoritarian, so that would be like things like um, big data analysis, artificial intelligence, surveillance, etc. So I imagine you think that Bitcoin or Ethereum or other public open permissionless blockchains are a net positive for democracies. Is that true? Yeah, actually, I saw this piece written by a British uh, analyst named Dominic Frisbee about basically can democracy survive without cash? And I thought it was a really interesting perspective. And, you know, to me, it's, it's more about the monetary aspect of Bitcoin. Um, I'm less interested in the blockchain part of it. Um, I, I think that Satoshi had to use a blockchain to build Bitcoin, but I'm really not that interested in the non-economic use cases of blockchains. At least I haven't seen their real world impact. Uh, um, and I'm a, I try to be Bayesian about the way I think about these things. So if someone creates some sort of other decentralized application on a blockchain that seems to be changing the world, I will certainly change my mind. Um, but from what I've seen, I like to focus on you know what Bitcoin is, how it works, how it's changing the world, how people are adopting it and using it under uh, very difficult political climates, and how it can be sort of like an escape valve. And then just just on this thought, like you know, can democracy survive without cash? I think was really compelling because at the end of the day, financial privacy as Andreas Antonopoulos says, is, is, and I think I agree with him, is that it, it's sort of like the, the human right that undergirds everything else, right? So if you don't have financial privacy, everything else can get taken away from you. And in a society without cash, in a society where all finance has been digitized, and it, you know, assuming we don't have something like Bitcoin, um, all of your daily activities are being sort of micro-tracked and surveilled. And, and that's how democracy dies. Mm. So actually, I would argue, yes, that Bitcoin is like a really important part of the future of, of democracy. Can we talk about how the monetary policy of Bitcoin in and of itself is 
you know, humanistic, right? So the fact that, so can we talk about like how the, the current structures of inflation, which is a hidden tax essentially, and, you know, a centralized party being able to control the monetary supply, you know, how is Bitcoin different and powerful in that regard? So uh, I just wrote a book with a handful of co-authors called The Little Bitcoin Book, which I will shamelessly shill right now. Sounds awesome. But we got together this summer in a house with a bunch of other prominent Bitcoiners like Jimmy Song and Elena Vernova, uh, Alejandro Machado, Luis Buenaventura, Lily Liu, and others. And basically, the idea was, let's kind of try to put together a primer on how Bitcoin changes uh, society and politics, things like that. Kind of like a Malcolm Gladwell style uh, kind of fun, curious reader on Bitcoin, which we didn't really feel like existed. They were mainly very like kind of academic or technical, right? But but it, it, we ended up really focusing the first few chapters on monetary policy and on money and on why money is broken in today's world and how it's broken in today's world. And we ended up looking at like a handful of different uh, reasons for that. And, you know, one is that... Um, Basically, if you don't have access to the dollar um, or the euro, like, you know, it's not a great situation for you. So several of our co-authors came from countries like Venezuela or the Philippines, former Soviet Union, etc., where, you know, they in the last several decades saw their savings, saw their national currency go from, you know, in the case of the Philippines, in 1980, it was seven pesos for for a dollar. And today it's like 55 or something like that. And, th- and that's a that's like a more gentle uh, rate of inflation. I mean, if you look at like Venezuela, where the inflation rate is 10 million percent, and I know that's kind of like an outlier, but generally speaking, uh, you know, most governments, most currencies have lost a huge amount of value against the dollar in the last 30 years. Um, <clears throat> most state created currencies only last on average about 27 years. That's the average lifespan of a, of a, of a fiat currency, right? So Wow, that's quite the statistic. Yeah, most of them just sort of die uh, or get replaced, right? So in Nigeria, one of the co-authors was teaching us from his experience that, you know, I think in like 92 or 93, the dictator of Nigeria uh, pegged the Naira to 22 per dollar. And what happens when you do an artificial peg like that is like quite obviously the economy does not uh, uh, mirror that peg, right? So what happens is in the black market, there starts to emerge a second price point, which over the next four, five, six years went up to as high as 88 per dollar, right? 88 naira per dollar. So what's happening is in this country, you have all these people making public sector wages, right? Uh, Like denominated in the official naira, 22 per dollar. But in reality, the, the currency was like four times weaker. So what that meant is they were getting paid and then they couldn't afford to buy anything. And this is when you get things like shortages and starvation. And you see this all over the world happen many, many times over the past few decades. So when we talk about the monetary policy being you know, humanistic of Bitcoin, we can dig into that a little bit in terms of like most monetary policies of currencies are prone to abuse and are basically perform really poorly and really damage like like let's say savers people who are trying to save for the future and at the end of the day they really damage like the middle and lower classes the most if you're wealthy you can access other assets right so if you're if you're in the top 1% in Nigeria or the Philippines for example you can get fine art you can buy real estate you can get you know maybe gold jewelry maybe even like um, you have a way of getting access to blue chip stocks on a stock market like in Japan or the United States. But if you're like in the 99%, you typically can't really do that sort of thing. So what you do is you usually take your fiat money and you buy something like a cow or like sheet metal or something like this. These are the examples that the folks that give directly told me they're like a company that helps sort of give organizations give more directly to people. And a lot of their clients are in East Africa and in East Africa and India, like cows are a very good store of value right over time. However, you know, the, the cows get sick, they die, et cetera. They get hit by a car, whatever. There, there, there are serious issues with that in addition to like them just not being very liquid. Like if you want to sell your sheet metal or your cow, there's like a lot of hoops you have to jump through. So what we're seeing now is like we're on the verge of like this new asset being born, which is, uh, which you can access permissionlessly. So unlike fine art or blue chip stocks or real estate, 
number one, there's not like a monetary barrier, meaning you could buy a dollar of it or 50 cents of Bitcoin. Like you could buy any amount of Bitcoin. And I mean, reasonably, like all the way down to the dust level, right? And you don't need like authority or permission. You don't need permission from the state or from a company to buy it, right? So you don't have to go through a huge process to get like real estate. In the case of real estate, it's extremely complicated to acquire real estate, right? It is very simple to acquire Bitcoin, right? So in both a financial sense and a bureaucratic sense, the, the bar for entry has been just like enormously lowered. And all of a sudden people are able to access this like asset class, which has a predetermined monetary policy, which cannot be inflated by governments, cannot be devalued. And, and this is just so powerful and revolutionary. And I think in writing the book, I, I realized that this, uh, as, as you mentioned, the sort of monetary policy of Bitcoin is one of the most exciting and revolutionary parts of it. I mean, there's so many elements of Bitcoin that are fascinating, ranging from the censorship resistant nature of it to how it can help fight surveillance by removing the middleman, which is a privacy and security hole, to the global borderless nature of it, etc. But uh, the, the, the fact that the monetary policy is hard capped and predetermined is, is really what, what I think will end up in the long run making it just something that gets adopted and, and desired by people all over the world. How has warfare changed in this generation compared to before? Warfare? Um, yeah. So what I guess we're seeing is um, obviously you saw over the last several hundred years war going from something that was done with like huge numbers of units, right? So like you had lots of infantry, you had large like mechanical warfare, which sort of culminated uh, in World War II. And this was uh, an evolution in warfare from the Middle Ages and, and from pre-BC ages, right? In, in the post-World War II era, you've seen a transformation of war going more towards like uh, asymmetric warfare, right? So where you have like large states that still have these like large machines, which are really powerful, uh, but they're fighting like underfunded kind of like scattered decentralized movements, right? So this was a classic case in Vietnam with the United States, with the Soviets in Afghanistan, um, and then the sort of like war on terror today, right? So warfare has um, changed dramatically over the last few decades. And Generally speaking, one sort of um, interesting side effect, if you read Steven Pinker's book on the history of violence, is that I think in, in a large part because warfare is like not as large scale as it used to be, sort of like isolated, your chances of dying a violent death on this planet are way less than they used to be, right? So I think just the numbers are something like a thousand years ago, you, had, you, you were like pretty likely to get killed in some sort of violent altercation. I, like certainly a non-trivial amount. I can't remember exactly, but 20, 30% chance. Today, it's almost zero. Like for an average human on this planet, it is like almost 0% chance you're gonna get killed in a violent altercation. Yeah, And that's like, a pretty remarkable thing. It's like we have all these, you know, huge massive machines now and just the threat of them looming uh, makes everyone avoid actually using them. So there's a lot of more passive aggressive types of warfare that are being instituted such as you know economic sanctions yeah, financial warfare. and trades uh, yet all kinds of things like that uh, embargoes so rather than you know annihilating a million people with a giant bomb you just kind of slowly starve them out until they're willing to surrender and do what you want them to do so how are uh, how is crypto and blockchain and specifically mm -hmm. bitcoin working as tools for the people who are ultimately the victims of yeah. you know these two warring uh, dictatorships or governments or ideologies, how can they use these tools to help protect themselves? So when we talk about war, we have to talk about peace. And like, what is peace really? So most people would define peace as like lack of war between like different nation states. But re really, every dictatorship, even though they might be like not in a hot war, engaged in a hot war with their neighbors although many of them are, every dictatorship is at war with its own people every day. So the North Korean people, for example, are the victims of horrendous violence from the state, resulting in rape, torture, and murder of many thousands of people every day, right? They have a quarter million people in gulags uh, in these concentration camps um, is, is a conservative estimate in, in a country like North Korea. In a country like China, you've got millions of Muslim minority Uyghurs in, in these concentration camps. So dictatorships are always at, at war with their own people when they're not openly in hot wars with, with, with others, right? 
And um, if you add that to the fact that there's also, as you mentioned, other kinds of war, uh, financial, economic sort of sanctions, repression, controls, uh, this is another way that governments control their own people as well, right? So the Chinese are only allowed to buy a certain amount of U.S. dollars every year. There are only there's like super stringent rules on capital controls. It's the same for for most countries that try to like control their people by like controlling, forcing them to use their fiat currency and then like controlling that. So so Bitcoin's kind of breaking this open. And, and I'll give you a good example. I- Iran is a country that's. Uh, it's just a very unfortunate situation. It's really sad. It's tragic. If you're like a young entrepreneurial Iranian these days, not only are you like unable to trade abroad and and participate in the international economy because of what I would say are pretty unjust sanctions by like the United States and Western powers, uh, pretty misguided sanctions, but even worse, your government is like this tyrannical, horrible regime, which which is a, it's a complete dictatorship and annihilates the human rights of its people every day. So you're kind of like caught between a rock and a hard place. But the interesting thing is Bitcoin provides people a way out. So I've spoken to a bunch of Iranians who live in Iran and, you know, they, they, they get their internet access and they're able to like earn wages with Bitcoin. You know, I can, from my table here in California, my home, I can, I can send them within 20 minutes an amount of Bitcoin that they can then exchange on. Uh, local platforms uh, for real, the local currency, and they can buy things. I mean, this is a rev- this is a revolution. This is a, a totally new economic paradigm where we can just not be concerned with sanctions uh, or or controls by a government when it comes to money. We can we can operate in this parallel global parallel economy, which is really what Bitcoin is. So that's been pretty amazing. Aren't there consequences for sending money? via Bitcoin or via anything to a sanctioned country or to a citizen in a sanctioned country? Yeah, there might be. But like, how are people going to figure that out? It's not so easy. Today, you would have to be the like target of a chain analysis project, right? For small amounts of money. I mean, no one's going to come after you. Yeah. Like if you're sending huge amounts of money, like five, six figures, seven figures. Yes. I would imagine that law enforcement officials are trying to track you down. But for small amounts of money, and if you, if you have good operational security with your Bitcoin, I think you're pretty safe. I mean, and this is only going to get better in moving forward. If you look at the privacy roadmap of Bitcoin, I mean, this thing is going to get really private in the next couple of years. Can you talk more about that roadmap? Yeah, sure. Well, not only are A, you're going to have more and more people interacting with Bitcoin uh, using second layer technologies like the Lightning Network, where you're not actually on the chain. You're not, you're not like conducting your business in a way that is trackable on this open public blockchain. You've moved off of it. So you've moved all your interactions off the chain onto a onion routed network, which is really difficult to track. I mean, the, the level of technical complexity and coordination required to like track and try to identify people in an over an onion routed network is like really hard, much more difficult than, than the current situation with Bitcoin. I, I even saw the NSA say that it's like the only thing that they don't know how to do is well, track they, can, they, can, they can try to arrest, for example, on the Tor browser, like they can try to crack down on people at, at the exit nodes, right? But like generally speaking, the network itself is just, it's, it's close to impossible to monitor, right? Um, as ironically, because the US government created Tor, but uh, even on the Bitcoin main chain itself, like, you know, you're looking at this new BIP proposed a couple of days ago, right? Erlay, right? So, so there's going to be, you know, a whole bunch of innovations on the base chain that will make, for example, it, it cheaper and more desirable to do like mixing. You're going to have uh, innovations that will allow people uh, to, for example, run full nodes potentially on their phones. Like you can like do this right now with like a a HTC Exodus. There's a guy I spoke to in the Bitcoin community here in the Bay Area who's currently doing this. I mean, if your phone's got 300 gigs of SD memory, I mean, can run a full node uh, on your phone and and you can contribute to the decentralization and privacy of the Bitcoin network that way, right? So there's a lot of things happening both with like uh, uh, the, the, the software itself the hardware, and then second layer technologies. So that in like two years, it just seems like really, really, it'll be really, really, really hard for people to track uh, these flows of money. Now, you know, are people being caught right now? It's unclear. I mean, the US government certainly has like tried to like publicize like several like 
Bitcoin addresses and put them on a blacklist. But generally speaking, inside Iran, Bitcoin is has has is a legal industry. I mean, there's even like like mosques that are taking advantage of like the fact that energy is subsidized and they're running Bitcoin mining operations. Yeah, isn't uh, I've been reading the news that Iran is subsidizing like certain energy uh, stuff yeah. for Bitcoin miners. So it's a little bit of a dance. I mean, you look at a place like China or Iran, and this is where we're actually going to see, we're, we're going to, it's like the canary in the coal mine of, of Bitcoin. Like we're going to see governments crack down in these places first before elsewhere. I mean, obviously in Venezuela, you, you've, you've been seeing the government, for example, try to accumulate Bitcoin, try to look at the electric grid and imprison people who are, who are, who are obviously mining. But, but the interesting thing is, whether it's North Korea or Iran or Venezuela or Russia or China, the countries that are trying to like uh, use Bitcoin that are starting to realize Belarus, even the other day mentioned this. I mean, countries that are, that are run by dictators who are starting to realize maybe they can like, it maybe would be smart for them to like accumulate Bitcoin and use it to avoid sanctions or whatever. You know, what's interesting is like short term, this may be good for them, but long term, it's like a Trojan horse, man. Like long term, what this does is it shatters their ability to control uh, the money system in their countries. So if it's almost again, it's like almost like this perfect Trojan horse thing where like they think it's good and cool and pretty and interesting and they start popularizing and they bring Bitcoin into their countries and they start using it over time. This is going to destroy their ability to control the money system because all of a sudden like there's just going to be a lot more people using this thing that they can't control they can't control the monetary policy they cannot confiscate from people it's confiscation resistant they cannot censor it's censorship resistant it's gonna be a lot more private a lot more hard to track so the geopolitical game that's being played and is unfolding right now is really really interesting but i, I certainly am optimistic that bitcoin's going to make life a lot harder for a lot of these dictators all right, Crypt Nation, real quick update from the good folks over at eToro who make my life possible and, frankly, Pete's Mind's life possible, too. If you don't know about them yet, well, you're about to. And if you haven't, I'm actually pretty surprised because these cats are everywhere. Uh, they are an exchange with over 10 million users spread across 140 countries. And I'd imagine that some of you are already, but the rest of you really need to go check it out. eToro is the exchange where the average consumer can buy and sell crypto with confidence. eToro is super fast, super liquid, very easy to use compared to some of the other exchanges. I mean, this is just the best place to start. Uh, And they've been around since 2007. 100%. And another super cool aspect of eToro is that if you're not ready to put real money in the market, you can trade with up to $100,000 of virtual money while you learn. So this is kind of a way that you can test the waters and get familiar with executing trades. You can learn market analysis, all these things before you actually put your hard-earned money at risk. It's actually pretty brilliant. Yeah, I wish I knew about this when I got started. And that's why we're bringing it to you guys. So go to crypto101podcast.com slash eToro. Sign up and see the difference for yourself. And remember, not all platforms are created equal. All right, back to the show. Speaking of not just Bitcoin, but going back to blockchain technology itself, a lot of us armchair evangelists that like to sit on Twitter and think of how with blockchain can possibly change the world. One of the main ones is decentralized governance and also uh, voting on blockchain to prevent corrupt elections and things like that. Is that just wishful thinking on our parts from our comfortable homes far, far away from these problems? Or can these solutions actually be implemented and make a difference? Or will the militias that back these dictators just simply say, I don't care what these results are. I don't care what the people think. We're just going to continue our forceful dominance. Right. So there's a lot, a lot to unpack here. Um, first of all, from first principles, in my reading of like, let's say a democratic society, an open society, the actual election itself is like the cherry on top. Okay. It's like, there's like a multi-layer cake here and foundation is separation of powers. Okay. So like the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, the military, they have to be like separated. They can't all be controlled by the same person. So once you have that, then you can sort of add on to the next layer, which is civil societies, NGOs, different groups that operate without, um, you know, basically permission from or, uh, you know, aren't controlled by the government. And then these can range from like stamp collecting clubs to baseball teams to 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 environmental groups, et cetera. And then you have the third layer, which is free expression. So my ability to, to 
write not only in the media and do investigative journalism, but also to speak freely to criticize the government. When you have all three of these things, you basically have all the ingredients for democracy. And then the elections are just like a mechanism for rotating new leaders in that represent the people. Democracy, obviously the word in Greek is ruled by the people, right? So at the end of the day, the, the, the voting in the elections to me are like, they're important, but they're like not as important as all these other aspects. So the technology of voting, while important, um, I don't think it's going to be like a savior or a panacea, that's for sure. So that's like one piece um, that we should be careful of. The second piece is, uh, yeah, like, so there are some people, uh, a friend of mine is um, Santiago Siri. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. You know, he and he's he's been doing some experimentation with like quadratic voting, which I find really interesting. I mean, just in a nutshell, one example would be like, you know, if instead of just a vote, you were given like a certain amount of voting units, you could in like if you really felt strongly about one policy or one candidate you could just dump all of your units into voting for that one person, as opposed to just like having this, like, like in California, let's say I care, let's say I don't care about the local school district. I don't know enough to vote on those things. I could take all my units and just vote just for the mayor. Right. And it would count for like more than one vote. Right. So this idea of quadratic voting is really interesting. And I'm certainly following that. Now, I, I don't know to the extent that it relies on or needs a blockchain, I think is the, the area where I'm like still learning and probably pretty skeptical. Like I don't, like to me, like the, the only way a blockchain works is if its security model's robust, right? So in the case of Bitcoin, that has like a super secure protection model rooted in physics and thermodynamics and, and game theory and in cash, in money. The really cool thing about Bitcoin is other projects can actually use that. For example, Komodo uses the Bitcoin blockchain to secure its own transactions. It has its own layer of miners doing proof of stake. Mm -hmm. And then after that, the transaction has to confirm using Bitcoin hashes, and then it has to confirm again. So it's got this three-layer thing that actually utilizes Bitcoin security for other chains as well. And then you can spin up side chains on that. So you can actually use Bitcoin's amazing uh, amount of security for just about anything now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know that I'm not familiar with that project. Um, at the end of the day though, like Bitcoin is just a database. Like you can put anything you want into it, I, I, you know, in, into one of the blocks. How are we supposed to know whether it's nonsense or not? So like, sure. Like you could arbitrarily use the Bitcoin blockchain and you could like put voting data or, consensus or historical notes in there, but like no one, no outside observer has any way of determining whether that's like helpful or true or false. You could just as easily spread a bunch of nonsense. It's this sort of like Oracle problem of computer science where if it's garbage data in, it's garbage data out. And this is why at the moment I'm not like, I, I don't really, I well, this is why we haven't seen like large scale successful real world implementations of like, blockchain databases beyond like currency projects like Bitcoin. There's just no, it just doesn't really make any sense from a first principles point of view. Like you have like a fish you're trying to track for someone who's going to eat it and they want to know where it came from. I mean, the person who inputs the weight at a particular point could just lie or make it up or make a mistake. And like no other user would be able to understand that that happened. Right. So I just think a lot of these like supply chain tracking in, trying to put anything into a blockchain that's like a real world thing that's not digitally native like doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. So I I, I just haven't seen anything world changing from that perspective. I do think there's like innovations in voting that are interesting, and certainly we we need to focus on like gerrymandering first. I think and like clean elections, and I think we can look at like press freedom laws uh, and you know. That stuff seems more fundamental to me than the actual like, oh, at the day, at the end, like when you have voting, 
like how do we mechanically do it? I actually think the process is, is that that's not really the problem. The problem comes sort of like before voting day in most countries. So when votes are rigged, they're usually not like ballot boxes being stuffed. It's usually like the, the main candidates, you know, besides the dictator, the opposition candidates, like don't get public funding for television advertisement, for example. So the, like the, it's like the cards are stacked against them from the beginning. So I think when we talk about like how to like build and ro- more robust democracies and how to improve electoral, uh, you know, systems, I, I think a lot of the work is to be done before election day. Now I'm intrigued by like new advances in voting, but like clearly like they're just experimental at this point. Uh, they may be implemented in like some small scale like situations in certain cities and stuff, but like we're pretty far away from this. I mean, David Chom, who's obviously one of the cypherpunks who helped invent technology that would later power Bitcoin uh, is also really interested in this area. And he, in like, I think 2000, about 10 years ago, he, he did a, a project with a city in Maryland, I believe where they, they implemented, um, I think quadratic voting of some type, but it, you know, it was an experiment and it was kind of cool. And, and then they moved on. Like, it's not like it caught fire and spread. So these things are kind of hard to, to implement because at the end of the day, they're not, there's no economic power behind them. I mean, the reason why Bitcoin works and, and is being spread and adopted is not only because it's secure, but also because there's just a lot of like skin in the game for people. Like people have a lot to win. People have a lot to, they can make a lot of money by being involved. Right. Yeah. It, it, that's it. I, I love that point. Yeah. So, I mean, I just like, it's hard for me to buy like blockchain projects that are, that are either like, you know, corporate coordination efforts or tracking stuff or voting, et cetera, where there's not like money involved. It just seems like that was the thing that Satoshi Nakamoto was trying to solve was this idea of like, we needed a money system with nobody in the middle. How can we do that? Well, we can have payment processing decentralized through a blockchain, through a time, he didn't even use that word, but he, you know, a a time-stamped database, right? Mm -hmm. We could have it done in this way. All of his effort was to, to how do we build money that the government doesn't control? This is this is like the focus, right? So I feel like some people have been a little distracted by looking at like the blockchain piece, but like really, I mean, a timestamp distributed database is like not that exciting. Yeah, I, I think that you know the success of Bitcoin, as you just said, it's inextricable from its economic qualities, right? And so we hear this term thrown around a lot in the in the crypto world called, you know, an anarcho-capitalist. And okay. so do you think that like the future of, you know, governance is, you know, if Bitcoin plays out, is that the future? A, a more of an anarchistic and, you know, economic focused government? Yeah, I think What's most likely to happen with the future of governance, if you're a betting man, is unfortunately a global authoritarian surveillance state. I mean, that probably the most likely outcome, especially if Bitcoin didn't exist. Okay. I think what Bitcoin gives us a chance at, what Bitcoin gives us an opportunity, I I would say it's non-trivial, but also not like, I would say somewhere like in the 20% range, let's just call it that that we actually preserve our democracies and preserve individual rights and freedoms. And we don't have this big global authoritarian surveillance state. I mean, I would still say it's like the smart money would be on a China-like global imperial power that just like sort of has total knowledge over everybody. That's certainly the direction that AI technology is going in. I mean, there's just, if you rack your brain about it, it's really hard to think of any way that AI could improve civil liberties. It just doesn't really work like that. But Bitcoin in its ability to like allow individuals to transact with each other directly with no middleman gives us the power to sort of like weaken that surveillance state. Like if you think about what Big Brother is, Big Brother is an attempt to collect as much data and information as possible about you, right? So if you and I all of a sudden are transacting without like metadata, really, and if we're not building a big digital footprint for Big Brother to eat up and like be able to build predictive models about us and then do carrots and sticks and socially engineer us. If we're, if we're at the base level, not allowing that to happen, then we can fight big brother. Right. So Bitcoin allows us a, to be able to like transact in this peer to peer way. It also allows us to like seize monetary sovereignty for ourselves. Like we can like control our money and it's not going to get devalued by governments. 
And I think that's like such a powerful idea. And again, you have this like interesting duality of like features of Bitcoin and then like it's, it's monetary qualities. And these are inextricably linked as you're saying. So there's like censorship resistance and the borderless global nature of it, which are all cool and really fascinating. But like at the end of the day, it's just the fact that it's just like the hardest money the world's ever seen. And it just will bend other things to its will. This is like what I believe at the end of the day. So I, I think with the emergence of Bitcoin, like we have a shot at fighting back against this like inev- otherwise inevitable global authoritarian um, surveillance state. One of the biggest concerns I have with Bitcoin is not Bitcoin itself. I mean, as a system, we've talked about all the great qualities of it. But now that governments around the world and institutions are getting involved in collecting it and hoarding it, Mm -hmm. I mean, just by the nature of supply and demand, you know, everything's, oh, this is going to go up. You know, it's going to be great for me. I'm in early on Bitcoin. But what happens if these governments that have trillions of dollars simply just buy up the Bitcoin supply and G20 countries all decide, okay, you know, we're going to clamp down very, very strictly on on-ramps and off-ramps or wallets. I mean, there's still going to be a very small black market that's going to figure things out. For example, you know, we can physically trade wallets without actually doing uh, transactions um, and things like that. But what happens, you know, after Bitcoin, if it gets taken over, do we just fork another one? I think there's a lot of truth in what you said, but consider this, people who who hold Bitcoin today, large amounts of it. I mean, a lot of these people hold it ideologically. They're not going to sell it to the Chinese government. This is not like what they're interested in. And they believe that the price they could sell it for today is peanuts compared to what they could sell it for in 30 years. So, so I think there's a really good chance that like the a decentralized, unknown, anonymous distributed network of basically geeks and computer nerds who hold a huge amount of Bitcoin, they're not giving it up to anybody. And I think we can, I think we can be pretty sure of that. Now the traders, uh, you know, and people who are like trying to make money and institutional investors, yeah, they're going to be interested in buying and selling Bitcoin. And that, that, I guess that presents opportunities for governments to come in and, and scoop up what's in the order books. But right now, there's not a whole heck of a lot of Bitcoin in the order books. They're pretty thin. And this is what attributes a lot of the volatility of Bitcoin is attributable to this. Like, you know, a whale can come in and just totally fuck up the markets for a day or two. That won't be possible in the future when this is a more robust asset that in my, in my, would be my project, prediction. But generally speaking, uh, I think governments have been really dumb and like have overlooked and have been arrogant and have like over, they just haven't really understood the power of Bitcoin. And they kind of missed their opportunity. It's just too late, man. It's just too late. I mean, yeah, they can try to accumulate it now, but like they won't be able to accumulate the majority of it and certainly not any one government. And it's all going to be a race. And even let's just put it this way. Even if governments manage to accumulate 40, 50% of all the Bitcoin in the world somehow for the next 10 years, I mean, it seems highly unlikely, but let's say they do it. It, it that will make the amount of bitcoins that the people in those countries own, even if they're smaller amounts, so valuable that it gives them enormous power, right? So it's this kind of like damned if you do, damned if you don't situation uh, for governments, I think. Um, it's sort of just to me, it's, it's kind of the writings on the wall. This is kind of inevitable. Like, yes, there'll be massive amounts of restrictions potentially in different countries, but the countries that don't put those restrictions, the countries that are the least draconian, the countries that are the most open-minded towards Bitcoin are going to attract the talent, are going to be the next Silicon Valley, right? I don't know whether that's like little island countries like Malta or Seychelles or whatever, or whether it's bigger countries. I don't know. I don't know whether there'll be dictatorships or democracies. It's unclear. Sadly, even democracies, even Northern Europe, apparently free countries, they seem to be the ones that are that want to crack down the most on financial freedom, which is really sad, but it's just the truth. Look at a country like Finland or something like that. This is an open and free country, but it wants to know everything about the banking system. And, you know, these people are just so thirsty for all of your data. So it's kind of sad. Yeah, I could kind of see a future that is similar to what happened when I, I think it was like FDR in 1930 or 1933, he did the gold confiscation where he basically made it illegal yeah. for anybody in America. I mean, people don't realize that this happened, but at one point in history, it was illegal 
to hold or to hoard gold. And they did this because they needed to, you know, refill their supplies. Essentially, we we're still on the gold standard. And, you know, then in 1971, we went off the gold standard. But I kind of kind of feel like there could be a future where it is now illegal to hoard Bitcoin or, or something. I don't know. Maybe there's an analog that you could speak about. If you look at the price of gold in the FDR era, right, you're talking like three, four, five, six hundred dollars. You know, today it's like it's like fifteen hundred or something like that, right? So governments can can try to restrict gold and they can try to restrict uh, the usage of it and try to confiscate it, et cetera. But I think in doing so, you kind of like make it more valuable, right? So if a government comes out and says, oh, we're going to ban Bitcoin. I mean, this is going to create such a crazy black market. I mean, you'd have to think that the price is just going to go up. And this is the interesting thing is that it's, it's so geniusly devised. It's almost devious in its nature in ter- from a government perspective. Like no matter what a government does, it's very difficult to kill. I mean, the more they try to like ban and control it, the more valuable it'll get, right? So we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, look, we're in, we're in 2019. We've already seen 10 years of the Bitcoin experiment. The world's largest police state as of today, China, views Bitcoin as legal digital property. Yes, you're not allowed to trade it uh, into, into an out of fiat currency. You're not allowed to do ICOs and stuff like that. But Bitcoin is considered legal property. So we'll have to see. That's what I'm saying. Like, look at a country like China as like the canary in the coal mine situation. Follow what's happening there. There's people who are really uh, incisive about what's happening in China. Um, you can follow someone like W. Wang, Primitive Ventures, to, to get an understanding of what's going on over there. But like, uh, if the world's largest police state hasn't banned Bitcoin, then like, you know, we're, we're, it's probably indicative of, of what other countries are thinking. It's also this geopolitical thing where no, you know, we're not living in a world where 180 countries or whatever are all going to agree on something. That's like not going to happen. So let's say China, Russia, the United States, EU, India, Brazil, like, you know, two thirds of the population of the world all agree, actually, oh, we're going to ban Bitcoin. Like we're worried about our monetary sovereignty. First of all, they have to fight Facebook and Google and Amazon, all these corporate money projects. So there's going to be like two fights happening. But basically, there are going to be countries that say, we're not going to ban Bitcoin. We're going to actually make it free and legal here and we're going to attract all the talent so all the bitcoin exchanges all the developers all the miners whatever they can come here right so it just seems highly unlikely that you're going to have like global consensus on banning this thing it's just doesn't i highly doubt it's going to play out like that instead instead you're going to see like a competition yeah and if countries do try and ban it there's always a black market like no matter where in the world you are there's always going to be a demand for this thing and there's always going to be a venue to trade it, right? It's a peer-to-peer currency. It's, it's yeah. you know, unconfiscatable. You can't really stop these transactions. And so one way or another, this thing is still going to live. Yeah. And like, again, the technology is evolving in a way where like, still, I still think Bitcoin remains under the radar for a couple more years, meaning like from an establishment point of view, I still think it remains at the bottom of its S-curve for a couple more years. Like, meaning only 1% global awareness, which is we're barely there yet. If you consider that 40, 50, 60 million people have meaningfully interacted with Bitcoin, I mean, that's less than 1% of the population. Yeah, we're still underdogs. We're still like at the, you know, the S curve of any technology, you know, goes like this. So if, if um, I think we're still going to be there for a couple more years and, and the price will probably kind of move sideways accordingly, but um, we'll have to see. Uh, but there's still lots of opportunities for people to get involved and for us to like li- to, to study and learn. I mean, um, there's just another piece that came out by Matt Alborg uh, the other day. He launched a new project to help us understand using local exchange data from local Bitcoins and Paxful. Well, we can see that like the usage of Bitcoin as a, as a, as a financial tool is on the rise in a lot of developing countries and a lot of emerging economies. And it would make sense, you know, that they have people in these countries have... Uh, highly restrictive financial rules. Their currency sucks. Um, and it's very difficult for them to get any sort of asset that, you know, is reasonably inflation resistant. So it, 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 it once the cat's out of the bag in some of these places, it's going to start to like just uh, bloom, I would say, like the, the interest in Bitcoin. So I don't even think we're there yet, which is which is kind of exciting. We're very much on the edge. This has been a fascinating conversation. And um, 
I, before we wrap it up, I just want to ask a couple more questions. Sure. Can you tell us a little more in detail about the Human Rights Foundation and what they're actually doing on the ground mm-hmm. to try and help combat this stuff and spread Bitcoin around the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we're not, uh, you know, we're like a nonprofit advocacy organization that's focused on helping promote free speech, and democracy, and other civil liberties. So we're not like a Bitcoin organization. But what what we are observing is that a lot of these people we work with. Uh, have massive infringements on their on their financial freedoms, uh, on their ability to transact and hold private property, et cetera. And we're we're conducting research and analysis to try and understand like why are people adopting Bitcoin? How are they doing it? And potentially, if it is going to be this tool of freedom and an escape valve, like how can we do more education around it? How can we talk to more dissidents and human rights activists and introduce them to it? It's sort of like 10, 15 years ago, like with encrypted messaging, where like one day, no, we worked with all these activists who are in highly dangerous situations. Like there was a point where like not, barely any of them used any sort of encrypted messaging. They just used like standard social media, right? Which is like highly prone to surveillance. So over time, we and many other groups have worked with, with activists around the world. And now they have like a reasonable, um, let's say education level on like, oh, maybe I should use something like Signal, right? So it takes a lot of time. So today, I'd sit down with people from dozens of countries and they just haven't really thought about Bitcoin. And I asked them questions about like, well, doesn't the government shut down your bank account? Doesn't, isn't it really hard for you to receive money and donations from around the world? They're like, yes, 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 yes. Um, well, how do you get money from one country to another? Well, we put it in a bag in cash. It's ridiculous, right? So, so people know that there's a money problem, but they haven't learned that, that Bitcoin can, can help them. And so one of the things we're doing is try to do some basic trainings and, you know, spread some awareness among these communities about what this is. At the end of the day, I want the activists and uh, do-gooders and democracy activists and protesters and journalists to learn about and become knowledgeable about Bitcoin before the governments do. That would be great. And that's like, I think, one thing that we can help with. That's amazing. I love Yeah. Thank you for all the work and the education that you're doing uh, around the world. Um, If you were to, you know, give a shout out to one other company mm-hmm. or maybe even one other nonprofit, perhaps one of each, what, which one like is having the most impact in your mind besides the, your, your organization? Yeah. I mean, I think coin centers is, is, is really important. Um, the work they're doing to try and educate us policymakers on why they shouldn't regulate Bitcoin uh, and why Bitcoin in many ways is very American uh, in the idea of keeping digital cash alive in a cashless society is really key. And that privacy is an American value and that freedom is an American value, all these things. I think they're doing tremendously valuable work. And then, and that, cause it, cause it then like sort of diffuses to other jurisdictions, right? So if they can like win and keep America a relatively friendly place for Bitcoin, that will like have huge second order effects in other countries and places, right? So I, I would say that like supporting them and interacting and engaging with Coin Center would be like a really important thing for people to do right now. And I mean, they do so much with so little. I mean, they have, I've been to their tiny office in DC. I think they have like four people or something like that. So certainly check out Coin Center. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I know uh, Niraj is very active on on Twitter. He's I love following him. He's always pretty yeah, funny. Yeah, support <laughs> Jerry, Peter, Niraj. Support them all. Sweet. Well, Alex, man, thank Anthony. you so <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. I know I learned a lot, and I think the audience is really, really going to enjoy this. Um, so, if we want to stay in touch with you or, or follow mm-hmm. your guys's uh, socials, can uh, can you shout those out real quick? Yeah. So, follow me. Uh, my last name on Twitter, Gladstein, G-L-A-D-S-T-E-I-N. Uh, you can follow the Human Rights Foundation at HRF. We have some events coming up that your listeners may want to engage with and check out. Absolutely. So the one I'll put on your radar is the Oslo Freedom Forum in New York, coming up on October 23rd in Midtown Manhattan, a one-day opportunity for you to meet some of the most amazing activists from around the world. We have Denise Ho, who's this like Cantopop star from Hong Kong, who's become like the face of the protest movement. We have Young Ho, who's the highest ranking diplomat to ever escape from North Korea, coming to give his insight into Whoa. the mind of Kim Jong-un. Uh, we have a professor uh, who is going to give us like a blow by blow of what's happening with Huawei and the Belt and Road and 5G and like the Chinese government's like Chinese surveillance project. We've got 
an amazing activist from Iran who's created this, uh, she's created this thing called White Wednesdays. So these like women in Iran are like filming themselves, taking off their headscarves and then like posting it on social media and it's going viral um, as like a way to fight the patriarchy. So there's a lot of really awesome, it's it's gonna be an amazing program. So Oslo Freedom Forum in New York, you can get tickets on Ticketmaster and uh, we tried to make them really like accessible. So it's like 10 bucks for students, 50 bucks for general admission. And then there's like a VIP level where you can come out to dinner with the speakers after. But highly recommend checking out the Oslo Freedom Forum in New York. There will probably be like a Bitcoin crypto related meetup either before or after. It's like a it's like a 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. event. So maybe there'll be a lunch thing or maybe there'll be like a cocktail hour thing. But we'll try to work on, on doing that. So these are, yeah, these are, these are some thoughts. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And I know I'm mm-hmm. going to keep that uh, at the front of my mind when I'm talking to people about some upcoming events. Uh, so yeah, so Oslo Freedom Forum in New York, you, uh, November 23rd, you said? October 23rd. October 23rd. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, and you can, you, you know, hrf.org, you can check out our website and you can see everything we're, we're doing. And where can people buy your book? On Amazon. So uh yeah, you can you can check it out on Amazon, uh, the Little Bitcoin Book, um, and yeah, leave us a review. Leave us a review on Goodreads. We'd be very grateful. And if you if any of your listeners want to translate the book into different languages, we're currently Spanish is pretty much done. We're we're getting Chinese done, which is really exciting. We're getting uh, Arabic done, um, and I believe we're getting French done at the moment. So we want to do Turkish, German, Italian. So if your listeners have abilities to do that stuff please get in touch with us um so again you can reach me on twitter at gladstein g-l-a-d-s-t-e-i-n just send me a message amazing well thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your wisdom with us and hopefully we have you back on here pretty soon anytime man. i feel like we could talk about just fucking everything yeah we can keep going <laughs> all right it's been a lot of fun let's talk soon Take it thanks easy. guys You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.